All right, we will return to our study on law and gospel. This is what, part 17? First thing we did was uh, we laid out the 25 theses on law and gospel. So all of those are, we, we completed all of those. We did a, a little bit of study on the London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 19 and 20, uh, primarily those two chapters. Um, so we worked through all of that. Then we returned back to uh, the first thesis and the 25, and we started working on that. But before we go back to that thesis, at least for Sunday school, we're going to do this. Open up to the book of Jude. And I know you're like, wait, I thought you said we're doing law and gospel. We are. But we're going to, we still need to finish Jude, so I don't want us to get too far away from that as well. We're going to bring the two concepts together, and we're going to do a little test, a little work here, and see how well we do, all right? One of the most important things uh, that's been said in this study on law and gospel is to, first of all, we have to understand the differences between law and gospel. We have to ensure that we never merge them or mingle them. But it has been said in the 25 Theses that, Understanding the proper distinction between law and gospel is absolutely essential because if you don't have a proper understanding of that, the Bible basically remains a closed book. You can't understand the book correctly. You can't understand the Bible correctly, even though most people don't have a proper understanding of law and gospel. So we'll take just a little bit of time during the Sunday school hour. We'll start in the book of Jude, starting with verse 1, and we'll work through this and see how well you are at finding law and finding gospel. All right? This is an easy book to do because there's not a lot here to, to, we should have any problem with. I hope everyone is very good at this. If not, this will be test number one, and we'll have plenty of others to work through. But if, if, the, if it is correct that you need a proper distinction between law and gospel, then... I cannot stress this enough, then whose responsibility is it to know how to do that? Not just mine, it's the responsibility of everyone sitting in the pew. That's the, that's the bizarre thing about non-Catholics. Non-Catholics don't want to be Catholics. They'll condemn the Catholic Church, yell at the Catholic Church, but then they don't want the responsibility that comes with not being a Catholic. If you're a Catholic, who, who has the responsibility for declaring dogma, defining dogma, and understanding the scripture. The church, the magisterium, right? As a Protestant, who has that responsibility? You do. I found this on the web. Okay, thank you, Siri. Okay, all right. Siri's trying to help me find something. All right, she's, she's like, here. No, you need to read this, okay? I don't know why Siri is talking to me. That's bizarre. All right, but, um, yeah, she's listening to me, okay? Oh, we're in trouble, okay? The government's listening, all right? But the, the, the issue is sometimes that's troubling, right? Because we, it's like we want this idea that, because if you think about it within the Protestant world or the non-Catholic world, we make some claims whether, whether, whether we want to make these claims or not. One, the claim is that you have the ability and you have the authority to interpret the Bible for yourself. Second claim is, not only do you have the ability and the authority to interpret the Bible for yourself, you can disagree with the pastor and tell him he's wrong, and if you don't like it, you'll just go start another church or find another church. Meaning that who has the authority? 
the individual. Right? I mean, that's a big claim. Yet, while we want that power, while we want that authority, typically within the Protestant world, what will people not do, according to every study on, under the sun? They won't actually study. They won't actually do the work. They won't actually read and study and dig in. They won't, they, they'll spend so little time doing that, but does that stop them from telling people who they, who's right and who's wrong? No. That's, I don't, I'll never understand that. Hey, I want, I want the right and ability to tell everyone they're wrong, but I'm not willing to put in any effort. It, it, it makes no sense to me. So, because we're not Catholic, well then, whose responsibility is it to have a proper distinction between law and gospel? It's yours. Now, my job is to teach you it, but it's your job to be able to go through the scriptures and go, that's law, that's gospel, and this is how it's used. All right? So we're going to start with just a little test. May not be the best book, but since it's one we've been working on, our two options was Jude or Amos. All right? And Amos, if people didn't participate in the actual study, well, you probably wouldn't have a clue what's going on. So, And those who actually participated in this study, well, I don't know if we still understand what's going on, all right? A lot of people this, uh, this week sent me their book synthesis uh, completion on the book of Amos, and they still have questions because it's a difficult book. So I figured Jude would be a better option. Does everyone agree? Okay, good. Everyone agrees. We could try Isaiah, okay? All right, Stacy hates Isaiah. All right, here we go. Jude, verse 1. Everybody got it in front of them? All right, read it. Just read it to yourself. You can read it out loud however you want to do so. Everybody ready? Jude, verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Stop right here. What do we have? Someone said it? Say it. Gospel. Why do we have it that it's gospel? Right? This is what's been done for us, right? Sanctified. That's being spoken of as a completed act, right? Remember, there's three, when we speak of sanctification, we speak of kind of three stages, right? The first sanctification happens when? Okay, initially, initially what? Well, there's kind of a, there's a couple of ways we can look at this. Now, remember, this is, we're reformed, right? Yes? Right? Okay. So, let's think about it from a reformed perspective. What is sanctification? What's the basic element of sanctification? The meaning, the basic meaning. Set apart. All right, now think about it from a reformed perspective. Yeah, we've been set apart. Those God has elected were set apart unto himself from when? Eternity past. So, so in that sense, we, we kind of have an eternal sanctification, correct? Right? Don't you agree? Right? I mean, God knew you. God had set you apart because he had chosen you, right? And at some point, he would effectually call you. So in a roundabout way, no, this one's not spoken of too much, but in a roundabout way, there's kind of a, a sanctification in eternity past. Then there's a sanctification of, we'll call it salvation, right? Because when you're saved, what happens? He effectually calls you, draws you, saves you, and that's basically setting you apart for himself, correct? So it's kind of like the outworking of the eternal 
sanctification. Right? Then, between, so between salvation, and then at the end, what do we have? We have the ultimate, right? The final sanctification, we were set apart for him for all eternity. We sometimes refer to that as glorification. But once again, it's a setting apart unto himself. So between salvation and glorification, what do we call that sanctification that happens in between that period of time? Okay, we do believe it's progressive. Sometimes it's referred to experiential sanctification. Sometimes it's referred to as practical sanctification. Yes? Right? It's experiential because it's supposed to something we experience that shows up in our life. It's practical because it's not dealing with our positional sanctification. Our positional sanctification is what happens to us in salvation, right? In Christ, how sanctified am I? Completely. So in Jude, what kind of what tense is he using there? Sanctified. It's done. It's been done. Right? Whatever we agree, it's past. Yes, it's been done. So who did that for us? Do we have any say in that sanctification? No. So in that sense, we could say that sanctification is, is it synergistic or monergistic? Monergistic. Now the debate becomes the, the experiential sanctification. Some say it's monergistic, some say it's synergistic. Well, we can have all the debate there. But this is referring to the fact that we have been sanctified. We have nothing to do with us. That's gospel, because gospel speaks of what God has done for us. So in Christ, we always remember this, in Christ, I have been sanctified, it is done. Okay, next, the next word, after sanctified, preserved, right? Does everybody see it? Right, preserved. Past tense again, right? And it's spoken of as a completed act, right? We are preserved. Next, called. All of that's gospel language. It's what God has done for us. We have nothing to do with that. Everybody see that? Verse 2, mercy unto you, peace and love be multiplied. All right, gospel, why? Something that we get, something done to us, not something, it doesn't say mercy to those who do this. Mercy unto you, what else? Peace and love be multiplied. All right, verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. What is that? Okay. Okay, well, okay. Well, it's giving, in the verse, it does mention something that has been done, the, God, the, the salvation that's been given to us. So there is a gospel part to it, but the emphasis of the verse is law, and why is it law? It's telling us to do something. But? Right. Okay, all right. 
So let's make sure we understand this. All right, so let's, so let's work through verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. Now, obviously, the common salvation is referring to gospel, obviously. But it's just saying, hey, I've written that to you, right? Okay, it was needful for me to write unto you and to, number one, exhort that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. All right, now, just remember, law. Is law, is, does law only refer to those words that tell someone what to do in order to be saved? The law is whenever God tells us to do something. Okay? Now, in many cases, it tells us, do this in order to be saved, right? Correct? Sometimes it just tells us to do something. Anytime we are told to do something, we understand that as being law. Where gospel is anything that tells us what has been done for us. Now, how could someone use this as a law in regards to salvation? How could someone turn this into a law in regards to salvation? There you go. That, that's what Protestants are great at doing this, right? Hey, we believe that we're saved by grace alone because of Christ alone. However, if you don't contend for the faith, you're not saved. We'll make it a test for salvation, All right? Well, that immediately makes it, a, that, that makes, now you're mixing law with what? Gospel. You're merging the two. And, you, and that's what we have to avoid. Now, because it's law, is it bad? No. But what does, what almost in every passage where you see law, what should be the end result of it? Well, the first thing is should, it should convict you, right? Okay, I mean, I, I can preach this as law. I can preach this, and guess what I would do? I would preach this as law. All right, if you're, hey, everyone in this room, you're supposed to be contending for the faith. But can you contend for the faith if you don't spend five minutes actually studying so that you can contend with it? I can start asking some basic questions here, and if you can't answer them, then you show me that you're not ready to contend for the faith. And I would ask you, in what ways have you contended for the faith this week? How come when it comes to certain situations, you won't contend for the faith because you're more worried about a friendship than you are Christ? So I can preach it as law. But we know what we typically do. <laughs> Either we get mad, right? Or, come on, come on, you all know what you do. Yeah, whatever. I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. Most Christians don't even get bothered, okay? But that tells you you should be contending for the faith. If you're not, it should bother you some. But you see how that would be law? I mean, a preacher could come in and say, do you contend for the faith? And in fact, if you go back and listen to the sermon, I preached it as law. Here's what's required to contend for the faith. What, what are some basic requirements that would need to be contend for the faith? You would have to know hermeneutics to some level. Right? I, can, I, can, I would preach it as law because it's, it's telling you what to do. So on one hand, you should be convicted. On the other hand, you know the only... Guess what? Do you, ever, do you think you fulfill that anywhere close to the way you're supposed to? No. So then what's your only hope? 
Christ. Did Christ contend for the faith? So in Christ, you contend for the faith. Does that excuse you not doing it practically? No, but what does it not impact? Your salvation, because in Christ, what are you? Sanctified, preserved, and called. You see how we keep those separate? All right, next verse. And that's earnestly contend for the faith, which was once delivered for the, uh, unto the saints. Verse 4. For there are certain men, crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you think? You think verse 4 is gospel? Okay, Stacy said neither. I definitely don't see any gospel in there. Okay, I don't see gospel in verse 4. What do we have? What do we think? Okay. We have facts, but the, the facts point to the, uh, that these men are what? Condemned. Ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the Lord. It's, it's condemning an action, right? It's telling them what they had done wrong. There's a little bit of law here, right? If you turn, what is this telling you you're not to do? This is telling you not to do something. Don't turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, yes? It's condemning that action. It's condemning their action, but it's condemning the action in itself, which is law. Because typically, how would this be preached in many sermons? How do we turn the grace of God into lasciviousness? Now, the minute I start preaching that way, what are you hearing? Law. Right? Does everybody understand that? Right? Now, I, I tried to challenge, and remember, I tried to draw the... What was the distinction I tried to make in Jude? Oh, we spent so long on this. Oh, there we go. Yes, thank you. Okay, right. So uh, the remembrance is to remind us of certain things and the description tells us. And here it's reminding and it's describing these men, right? These false teachers reminding us of the judgment that these, that, that happens, that God brings. And, but remember, the whole purpose of the book is to motivate what? Believers to contend. Remember, the book was not written to warn you that, hey, don't follow the false teachers. The book is written to, to, to motivate you to contend, which is law-based, yes? It's telling you to do something. Telling you to do something. Telling you to do something, all right? What's the next verse? I will therefore put you in remembrance. Right? Though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed them that believed not. Well, we got a lot going on here, don't we? What do we have? We have gospel that he saved, but we have law because he destroyed, right? We have a little bit of both here, correct? Would everyone agree that we have a little bit of both? Yes? No? I I hear silence. I'm just going to say that everyone agrees. All right, verse 6. 
And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved into everlasting chains, unto darkness, unto the judgment of the great day. Clearly, there's law, because it's speaking of what? Condemnation, judgment. Next verse. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Clearly, that's dealing with what? Judgment, judgment, condemnation. All right, verse 8. Likewise, also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, speak evil of dignities. What is that? It's going to be law, right? It's, it's condemning, it's condemning, it's condemning. It's, it's showing you the, the judgment that God brought on these people. Verse 9, yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. Now again, this, it could be just given information. Is it giving information? Yes, but what is it telling us? What is it trying to tell us to do? What do you think he, the, the purpose of this verse is to the people Jude wrote this to? We spent a long, a long time on this. What not to do? When contending with these false teachers, what are we not to do? Bring a railing accusation. And if it's telling us what to do, what is it? It's law. It's law. And how did I preach it? Law. Because what did I challenge us to do? Don't bring railing accusation. And I gave examples of how Christians do that. Correct? That's law. Does does everybody understand how that works? And now what is that supposed to do when you hear that? Convict us? Because have you ever made a railing accusation? Okay, all right. So then you realize your sin and what's your only hope? In Christ. Do you see how that's supposed to work? The law condemns. But how could some preach it to turn this, to mix the two? How could this be used to mix law and gospel together? If you're making a railing accusation, it may prove that you're not saved. That's, that's the go-to sermon mechanism in the American evangelical church. Do this. If you don't, possibly you're not saved. Do this. If you don't, you're probably not saved. Do this. If you don't, you're probably not saved. Don't do this. If you do, you're probably not saved. That's, like the, that's the way sermons are preached. And the problem is that merges what two concepts? Law and gospel. And what gets destroyed in that? Gospel. Cannot, I cannot stress that enough, right? Next verse. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. Whoa! And so, again, it's, it's a condemning kind of concept, yes? And, and, and it can be used to tell us what we're not supposed to do. Woe unto them, for they've gone in the way of Cain, ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. Now, again, what would verse 11 be? Law. And how would it be preached? How would this be preached in most churches? This is the way of Cain. Don't do it. Right? Here's Balaam. Here's Kor. Here's what they did. Don't do it. Now, is there anything wrong with preaching that? 
No, because it's law. It's got to be preached. But what should be the correct response to it? To acknowledge that we do these things, right? We act like Cain. We act like Balaam. We act like Kor. Remember, how, how did I preach it? Nobody remembers, okay? I preached it as law. Because that's what the text demands. And so your response was to be, woe is me, because, because we were guilty of those things, yes? So then what should be the right, a correct response? Conviction, right? Well, we, we'll go with three. The correct response to the law is acknowledgement, conviction, and run to Christ. It's got to be an acknowledgement, and then you need to be convicted by it. It doesn't excuse our lack of doing it, but it should drive us to Christ. Next verse. I should just make y'all do this on paper, and I just sit here and wait. Okay, verse 12. These are the spots in the Feast of Charity. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds that are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit uh, withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Okay, it's judgment, it's law. And again, how is it typically preached? It gives description. This is giving descriptions of the false teachers, right? So we look like, here's the false teacher, here's the false teacher. Now, what's the motivation in the book? What's the whole purpose of Jude? To get you to contend with these kinds of people. Well, one, the law is already hanging over you because you're supposed to be contending with them, yes? Then t- but most of the time, how is Jude preached? Hey, don't follow these false teachers. Don't be like this. But you look at what they do. Once again, what, are you going to see a little bit of yourself? Yes. So once again, you should be acknowledge, convict, and Christ. Verse 13, it continues with the description. Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. I mean, this is condemnation, condemnation, judgment, 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 judgment. Verse 14, Enoch, also the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord is cometh with 10,000 of his saints. Uh Uh-oh, what do we have here? Well, we need the next verse, right? It sounds promising right there, doesn't it? A little bit. Oh, like, oh, here comes the Lord with the saints. This is, this is gospel. This is good news. Next verse. To execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and all, and, and all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Right, I think you can see that that's law. Next verse, these are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons admiration because of advantage. More what? Law, 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 condemn, 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 condemn. Now again, what's the, what's the, what's the positive way of looking at this is this, these words of condemnation is supposed to motivate you to do what? contend, but that motivation to contend is still law, right? It's still telling you to do something. So, so you've got lots of law in this book, all right? Does anything change in the, in the following, in the end of the book? Here we go, verse 17. 
But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, it's, we're just going to be, we're kind of called to remember something, a little bit of law because we're told to do something. Right? What are we going to remember? What are the words? Let's see. Verse 18. How that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lust. We are reminded of these warnings that the apostles told us this was going to happen. Still a little bit of law because it's giving us words of warning about what? Sin. Yes? Rebellion. Scoffers. Verse 19. These be they who separate themselves sensual, having not the spirit. Still words of judgment and condemnation, yes? Next verse. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Maybe a kind of, you could, this one would be a little difficult because it feels like we're doing something. We're building up ourselves, but what are we relying on? Well, our, our most holy faith, right? So you have faith here. So a little bit of gospel because faith is relying on what Christ has done. And then keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. A little bit of gospel here because the focus is on what Christ has done for us. He's given us eternal life. So in other words, hey, you've got to contend. Here's all of these false teachers who are condemned. And what do we have to remember? Our faith and the eternal life given to us in Jesus Christ. That's what we have to hold on to. And then what's the next verse? And of some have compassion, making a difference. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spot, spotted by flesh. It's almost like the, he's trying to draw a picture, is he not? The false, what are the false teachers? All the words around the false teachers are what? Judgment, 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 judgment. Does everyone agree? Now here, when he returns back to the saints, what are the words surrounding them? Faith, eternal life, Holy Spirit, uh, mercy, right? You see that? And so all, because of all that God has done for us, what should be our response? Compassion. Compassion. It's not a compassion built off law. It's a compassion that arises from what? Gospel. This is a gospel-motivated compassion, right? These people are all condemned, but because of what Christ has done for me, then compassion, and that compassion should motivate me to do what? What does the verse say? Make a difference, and then the next verse? Something about pulling them out of the fire? Yeah, in other words, we should be motivated by gospel. This is a gospel motivation, not a law motivation. It doesn't say, hey, snatch these out of the fire, or you proved you're not saved. Correct? What, what's the motivation here to do so? The motivation is because of what Christ has done for us, right? And remember, that. what are we trying to keep the distinction between? Law and gospel. Is the motivation law-based? What's a law-based motivation? Okay, say it. 
Okay, do this and be saved. That would be kind of a law-based motivation. All right, what else would be a law-based motivation? Okay, it's the, it's, I'm going to return to this one over and over and over and over until everyone says this every time I ask this question, all right? The law-based motivation, you should all know, it's like, it's the way the entire American church operates. Do this or you're not saved. You have to do this to prove you're saved. So, when you look at the test given to prove someone is saved, what's one of the things that may show up on that test? Evangelism. Do you evangelize? Do you love the loss? Do you have compassion? If you don't, you're not saved. That's what, what kind of motivation is that, everyone? That's law-based. What's a gospel-based motivation? Because of what Christ has done for you, have compassion for those who are under the wrath of God. You see the difference? Most of your Christian life, what kind of motivation have you been given? Law. Does that make people more godly? Do I wish it did? Oh, I wish it did. What, what, what does law-based motivation almost always lead to? All right, everybody ready? Okay, uh, if you don't write anything down for Sunday school, write this down. Law-based motivation leads to, everybody ready? Number one, behavioral, behavioral modification. We modify outward behavior. Come on, there's parents in this room. You all know about behavioral modification, right? You pass a law in your home. You make threats that if they don't do this, there will be punishment. And the child may outwardly modify the behavior in order to avoid the consequences. Has that changed anything on the inside? In fact, if you're not around, right? They don't care, right? They don't care. All it requires is the removal of the threat or the authority figure. Talked about it before. Jim Ned, junior high. We had to make these models of the Alamo because in Texas, the only history we learn is Texas history, right? We didn't even know, I didn't even know that there was an America. I just knew there was Texas. And the only thing that ever happened in a Texas was the Alamo. That's all I knew about history, okay? All right, so the Alamo. So we made these models. We made them out of all kinds of different objects, right? So we have them all laid out. Look at all of our Alamos. That's great. And then the history teacher is like, hey, I got to go do something. You guys be good. And then someone in the class like, remember the Alamo? And then they grabbed part of the Alamo and threw it at someone else and everybody grabbed all, and all of a sudden all of our Alamos became weapons and we're throwing at each other. We got desks turned over. It's complete war. And then the history teacher walks in and we're like, oh no. And of course then we, because back then you got paddled so we got taken to the principal's office and paddled and it was, it was a horrible ordeal. But all of that required for everything to go wrong was the removal of what? The authority left the classroom and chaos ensues. No. But I definitely tried to finish it. <laughs> All right. I definitely, I definitely tried. I was throwing anything. I was throwing desk. I was throwing anything. Okay. I mean, it was, it was crazy. I mean, 
And you don't know why you do that, but it happens. Okay? And you know how it works, right? You just leave, leave their kids for 30 minutes and the Lord of the Flies begins to erupt in front of you. I mean, it's, it's chaos, right? But so guess what uh, law-based motivation does? It creates behavioral modification. Now, sometimes you're happy with behavioral modification, right? As a parent, you're just like, thank goodness, just stop, right? But that's just behavioral modification. What does behavioral modification lead to in the life of a believer? So we'll just, we'll just, we'll follow kind of a, a, a line of reasoning here. Listen to it. So law-based motivation will create behavioral modification. Behavioral modification, we'll just, we won't, we won't break it out like a, a flow chart. We'll just all keep this as the result of law-based motivation will be number one, behavioral modification, and number two, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Well, we start thinking that we're better than we are. We start thinking that we're more godly than we are. We start thinking that we're good and they're bad. We look at their sins as worse than our sins. Because we have to convince ourselves of what? We have to convince ourselves we're good. Right? Because the law has told us in the church that if we don't do these things, we're not saved. So I've got to convince myself that I'm more godly. So guess what I love to do? I love to point out everyone else's sins because it makes me feel what? Morally superior. Makes me feel better. So so I I cannot stress this. It leads to behavioral modification, which leads to self-righteousness. In a sense, we run around in our fig leaves. We run around in our robe of self-righteousness thinking and condemning everyone else and thinking that their sin is a million times worse than our own. That's not good, is it? Now, guess what can happen sometimes? Sometimes this behavioral modification and this self-righteousness, sometimes, this is a logical progression, will start leading to discouragement because sooner or later you start realizing you're not as good as you think you are. You start realizing, man, okay, nobody else may see my sin, but man, I mean, I got a bad attitude. I'd have this problem. I have this problem. I mean, I've, I've got it all covered up really good with the fig leaves. I'm, I'm doing really good, right? I'm, I'm doing really good, but man, I got a problem. And so you start becoming a little discouraged. And then discouraged can lead to what? Almost a depression. Which can lead to doubt. About, man, I don't even know if this Christian stuff works. I mean, we're, I'm not really any better than anybody else. And I keep making this mistake and keep making this mistake, which then can lead to deconstruction. Which, just go on TikTok and watch all the deconstruction videos. Where people, I used to be a Christian, I used to go to church, but now, forget this, it doesn't work, I'm done with this. This is all garbage. And guess, and guess what? It, sometimes all it takes is a, the right kind of sin, whether you're embarrassed or humiliated, and you're just like, that's it, I'm done. Forget it. I tried, and now I'm, I'm embarrassed. And, I'm like, what? And, and the church is not very good at being open, having open arms for those who sin. Oh, no, no, no. We've got to condemn, 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 condemn. And why do we have a tendency to do that? Makes us feel good about ourselves, doesn't it? If I can push the other person down and kick them, it's because I feel more self-righteous. It feeds into the whole thing. 
Law-based motivation is absolutely devastating to a gospel-minded Christian and to a, to a really a biblical Christianity. And we've all fallen for it. We've all fallen for it. And, and it's, it's sad because, but, and, and, it, and the lordship idea really has played a lot into this because it creates that. Do, what, what should be the, what's the goal from biblical Christianity? Is it behavioral modification? Is, is the goal of biblical Christianity behavioral modification? It's not behavioral modification. It's salvation. Right? It's, 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 about a, a, it's about a sinner believing and trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's primarily what it's about. But we, we want, what do we want Christianity to be? We want it to be rules to change people's behavior. Right? Sometimes you'll hear people, uh, maybe at your job, I've, I heard it many times in the military, man, I gotta, I gotta get my kid either, I gotta start taking them to church or I gotta get them in a Christian school. And it's like, oh. Man, I, I got to get my kid in a youth group because what are they looking for? Behavioral modification in their child. Christianity is not about behavioral modification. It's about salvation. And that, but some people equate salvation with what? Behavioral modification. But I would look at 1 Corinthians and tell you that that church didn't seem to have a lot of behavioral modification, did it? When people are getting wasted drunk at the Lord's Supper, you know you got a possible, you know, hey, that's a good church, right? They say, well, that was an exception. No, I think the New Testament is filled with sin, 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 sin. What has 2,000 years church history been filled with? Failures. And then, we're, and then the church never knows how to handle the failures, right? Why do we keep sinning? So then what's our go-to excuse? What's the go-to excuse that Christians use when we look at the church and it's filled with sin? Okay, well, sometimes we may say that. What's, what's the most go-to? Well, you, most people are, are probably not saved. It's always go-to people are not saved. That's the go-to thing. Christians love that, right? Someone of an, another religion, someone of another religion falls into some horrible sin and what, what is a Christian's reaction? Well, that religion doesn't work. Anyone makes a horrible mistake within Christianity they probably weren't saved. <laughs> Isn't that, what kind of ridiculousness is that? Guess what? Do horror, I, I, and, I, and again, we, we seem to forget it. Well, well, we always have another excuse. If it's anyone in the Old Testament where it doesn't count because you know Old Testament saints are different than New Testament. So we always have to make some kind of an excuse. But I don't know. The Bible is filled with some really messed up people and they're all found in Hebrews chapter 11. As examples. Now, what are they examples of? Faith. Now, do they do things? Yeah, they do things. But what's left out of Hebrews 11? All the bad things. Because in Christ, what is remembered in Christ? The good, not the bad, because we're in Christ. So I just want you to understand that behavioral modification is a bad thing. We cannot... We, we don't want behavioral modification. And I think we live most of our Christian lives operating that way. Do we not? 
Now look at verse 24. Now unto him. Who do you think the him is there? Verse 24, who is the him? Christ. To him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and for and ever. Amen. Uh, now, here's the thing, verse 24. What's the, tr- what's the troubling word in verse 24? It should be all, it should, should be no troubling. It should all be gospel. It is gospel. But what's the word everyone will focus on? Okay, faultless is not a problem because we can see how that works, right? We're in Christ. He can present us faultless because we're in Christ. There's one other word. starts with an F. Falling. You know how many sermons almost turned that into a law? Okay, here's a basic teaching within the Christian world. We've talked about it now on the podcast a thousand times in this series, okay? Not only in church, but outside of church. The basic teaching within the evangelical world goes like this. You get saved, and what do you get? Power and over sin, and now what are you able to do? Say no to sin, yes to God, therefore, you don't ever have to fall. So how does he keep you from falling? It's preached as a law. Now you have the ability to do so. So if you fall, what does that seem to prove? You're not saved. Do you see how we can take a gospel thing and turn it into a law? How do we understand that he's going to not keep us from falling? What's the only correct way to understand that? In Christ. In, In your life, do you fall? I can give you three scriptures, and I bet you every one of you violated this, these three scriptures all week. You ready? Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Anybody pull that off this week? All right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, you probably, if you think you do, you just don't know how much you actually love yourself. Okay? And number three, be holy as God is holy. Anybody pull those off this week? So that means you fell all week. I thought he was going to keep you from falling. But in what way did you not fall? In Christ, did you love the Lord that God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul? Because didn't Jesus love the Father with all his heart, mind, body, and soul? Did Jesus love his neighbor as himself? So in Christ, yes. Was Christ as holy as God? Yes. So in Christ, yes, you're as holy as God. It's only in Christ. But it ends with gospel. So the book, does it start with gospel? Show me which verse starts it with gospel. Verse 1, right? What's the words? Sanctified, preserved, called. Whew, that's good news, right? Remember, the whole reason they're called to, com- to uh, contend, yeah, I was going to say condemn the faith, con- contend for the faith, the reason that they are motivated to contend for the faith because of their security in Christ. And then how does the book end? Gospel. What, what's the gospel words at the end of the book? So, unto Christ, 
unto him, and then he, all that he does for us, list all the things he does for us. Keeps us from falling. Presents us faultless. Okay? All of that is done by him. It starts with what he has done, and then in a sense it tells us what he will do. The book starts with what he has done and ends with what he will do. That is all gospel. In the middle, there's lots of law. Right? The law is directed really in two ways. Primarily, the law is directed at whom? The false teachers. They're going to be condemned. They're going to be condemned. They're going to be condemned. Typically, preachers take that and turn that on who? Us. Okay. But, so you've got to realize when the sermon is, when you're getting a law sermon, right? You've got to make sure. And what, what's your react, what's supposed to be your reaction to law? Acknowledgement. You've got to acknowledge that your fault, convicted by it, and then turn to Christ. That doesn't excuse your failure of it. Okay? And what? And the motivation, though, in the whole book, the motivation is supposed to be what? The, the, is gospel motivation based on what Christ has done and will do, we are to contend out of compassion so that we can pull those from the fire. It's a gospel motivation, not a law motivation. Because a law-based motivation will only lead us to do what? Possibly to behavioral modification. Typically, law-based motivation will do a couple of things. It will produce rebellion. Or it will produce behavioral modification. And as a preacher, what do you think I see most? Rebellion. I mean, I've, I, I've watched it. I've watched it a million times. I, I can come here, guys. The scripture tells us to do this, and I can just look and I see. I already, whatever, going to do whatever I want. It, it, being a pastor is no different than being a parent of a teenager. Uh, it's funny. The the parents will sit in church and get upset with their teenager because the teenager's like whatever, and then they do the same to me. Whatever. I'm like, you're no different than your teenager. So why don't you get upset at them? They learned it from you. Right? I mean, I've seen it a million times as a pastor. Okay, guys, I, I, I need you to do it. Guys, come on. Study this this week. All I need you to do this week is, is do a 10-minute devotional. Where's our, I don't have it with me. I remember, I can go all my, through all my great failures as a pastor of things that we tried to do. Uh, the, the one summer, three months, all I wanted everyone to do was to do the, the daily devotional. This. Because we used to buy these for everyone in the church. I'm like, that's it. That's all I ever want everyone to do is each day, they open it. Remember, I said, take a notebook. And I, and I told you, you could even do this. I read it. Just write that down. A notebook? Read the scripture, read the thing. And I even tested it in front of everyone. How long did it take? Less than 15 minutes to read the scripture and read the devotional. And then I said, just write down one thing you learn. And then on Sunday school, we would come in and I would give a test of what we did that week. Right? A teenager wrote the test for everyone. It was simple. How do you think it went? 
An abject failure. An abject failure. Oh, man, the worst week. Because sometimes for this uh, devotional guide, they would pick one scripture for the whole week. The whole week was Philippians. I think it was chapter 2. May have been chapter 3. So the first question asked, because when they wrote the, the, the test, they said, do you think this is too easy? And they gave it, and I'm like, that's ridiculous. I'm like, everyone will pass that. The teenager said, no, they won't. Guess what the question was? What was the scripture for the devotional this week? Nobody had a clue. Guess what I just determined at that moment? Wasting my time. I wasn't even getting behavioral modification. I was getting flat out. I don't care that the pastor asked me to do this. I, I mean, you could have been driving the church and just opened the devotional and just, lie, just looked at it and known that it was Philippians. You didn't even have to read it. That means people went a week and didn't even look at it. So that, that was the end of that. We, we canceled that, right? I'm like, done with that. We're not spending the money on that. I'll buy them for, I'll buy them for people somewhere. That, that was, that, you know how frustrating that was? But you know what you begin to realize? That that's, that's what you can, and, and, and guess what? What could I have said? You're not saved. You won't even spend a week, 15 minutes in God's word, and you want to claim that you're saved? Now, when I was a young preacher, that's exactly how I would have preached it. None of you were saved. Right? Because Lordship Salvation taught me that's exactly what to say. Because you, come on, you're going to argue for Lordship Salvation, and you can't even spend 15 minutes a day in the word of God, and you're going to tell me you love God? You're going to tell me you love his word? You're a liar. There'd be truth to those words, right? You say, so what's the answer? Well, the answer is not obviously law. Because law doesn't fix anything. What would that ultimately lead to if I kept preaching that way? Rebellion? Discouragement. We can add some other words. Anger. Frustration. And the inevitable, go find a church where they don't give me as many demands. Now, should that law, should law be preached? Absolutely. Now, what should, the correct response for the people when they realized that they were not doing the devotional, should have been, what? Acknowledgement, not making 500 excuses, right? Because I always hate the excuse. I was too busy. And then five minutes later, they're talking about a TV show they're watching. I'm like, you weren't too busy to do that? I just don't. Okay, acknowledgement, and then what? Conviction, and then, praise God, my salvation is not based on how much scripture I read. Praise God that my salvation is not based on how faithful I am to church. Praise God my salvation is not based on these other things. Praise God that my salvation is based on what? 
like Christ did. And hopefully, that should then what? Motivate you to want to do that. That's the way it should work. Amen? The motivation has to be gospel. The law is to convict. The gospel is to comfort. You, we need the conviction sometimes. See, what happens sometimes in preaching is we'll become so bothered by the law that we'll kind of move away and just gospel, gospel. Sometimes you've got to have that rebuke and have that correction. And you, but you should be bothered by it. It shouldn't create a rebellion. It should create, man, he's right. I, I can't even read my Bible for 15 minutes. What is wrong with me? Okay, good news is my salvation is not what? Determined by that. But man, if God would save me when I won't even read his, his own word for 15 minutes, whew, I, that's pretty messed up. Then maybe it would motivate us to do it. Do you think it's always going to lead to motivation? No. It's not. Sometimes even gospel motivation doesn't motivate. But the gospel doesn't save you based off the motivation you receive from it. The gospel saves you. Someone said it? Based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, not have anything to do with us. That's how come we're not saved by what we do. But it always drives me crazy when someone wants to argue with me about this concept because I'll be like, let, 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 let's go with your theory. I will preach to you according to your theory and you need to admit that you're not saved. But everyone who argues with me always believes that they're what? Isn't that weird? <laughs> I'm saved. You need to preach it the right way. Oh, well, Maybe instead of you telling me what to do, you should look at your own life because you would acknowledge that you're not saved if you want with the test that everyone wants. Nobody passed the test that everyone gives. I, I can just, again, I can start with one test. As a Christian, should you not, just go through some scriptures. We should desire the word of God more than what? Gold and silver and food. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, right? Study to show yourself approved. As a newborn babe, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Blessed is the man who meditates on God's word day and night. I can go on and on and on, right? Well, if I, if I, just, if I can just take scripture and your attitude towards scripture as a proof of one's salvation, I can condemn 95% of the evangelical world. But people who preach lordship will fail that test and still argue for the concept. Now for me, I use that to prove that I was saved. Guess what I, guess what I left out? All the other things, right? Pray without ceasing. Love others. Eh, not so much. I, I read more than anybody else. Say, I, I found the one that worked for me. So if, you, if you're ever going to do that, what do you have to be honest with? Your failure in all the areas. And guess what we all come up wanting and needing? Grace. And Jude starts with the gospel and ends with the gospel. 
And so the motivation for them to contend is gospel. And what's your motivation? It has to be gospel. Does everybody see how that worked, the distinction between law and gospel? All right, we'll do more tests and we'll see how well you actually have it down. That was the, that's an easy book. There's just a couple of verses where you're like, well, maybe, but ultimately I think it's pretty simple. All right, let's stop there. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Help us understand the distinction between law and gospel. Forgive us when we merge the two, mix the two, and condemn others by our failure. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,